Amen. Would you please stand with me, friends, as we read this morning uh, Psalm 3 before going to the Lord's Supper. Let's stand and again hear the Lord's word. It is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Again, Father, we thank you for your word and pray now your blessing be upon it. And we pray for your spirit's blessing upon this servant and upon these, your people. Please encourage our hearts today, we pray. Strengthen them in your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How often we wake in the morning and your body, and I find this to be increasingly the case. Tim mentioned his body is wearing out. And I was like, we're about the same age, and I feel the same thing. Your body, you swing your legs over the edge of the bed, and you slowly sit up. But before your legs even hit the floor, your mind has already begun a sprint, thinking of the things that are going on in the day, uh, the things, the tasks that have to be dealt with, and problems you anticipate, and, and, and things you have to deal with along the way. Oftentimes, these things can feel quite overwhelming, so much so that you'd rather not even get out of bed and begin the day. I understand that depression, one of the marks of depression is you just have a hard time getting out of bed because you're sometimes so overwhelmed with what's going on, you think, I just don't even want to start this day. (laughs) Four hours has come too quick. David, here in this psalm, is in the later part of his life. He has written a psalm. Again, it's a song. It's an expression, a demonstration of his confidence, his confident trust in the Lord in the face of overwhelming circumstances. In this case, however, it's overwhelming circumstances of enemies, and not just enemies, but of his very son. It's a very hurtful uh, place that David is coming from here. And we want to think to ourselves, boy, you think you have problems. I don't know of anyone's child who is actually coming after him to kill him. And yet here is Absalom. Again, this is a psalm. It is a a creed sung and not spoken. And it is here to give us encouragement as we face overwhelming problems that we have a reason legitimately so to be able to face the days ahead of us with a tremendous hope. And if you think about what's going on in the world around us, you could certainly look at this and say, there is reason for us to have great hope, great confidence in the Lord, despite the circumstances that we feel. Look at verses 1 and 2, and we see how David has handled these things. A wonderful example for us. Uh, David acknowledges to the Lord those things that are crushing in upon him. Verses 1 and 2 read this way. 
Again, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Again, the psalm was written on the occasion of Absalom, David's son, at least one of them, who was actively pursuing the throne of Israel. We learn this from the inspired text, the title, or what is called the superscription here, at the head of this psalm, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We read of this account uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 2 Samuel 17. If you just turn with me, I just want to read a few verses because it gives you an idea of how kind of messy this, this situation is. In 2 Samuel 15, we read this in verse 1. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. When any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He's quite a political beast, Absalom is, right? You have the image of the politician kissing babies. Oh, look. He loves children. Look at him kiss those children. Um, he's shrewd. He is a shrewd man. And here he is working to steal away the hearts of the men of Israel. Again, this politician, this man given to political intrigue and backroom meetings, he is a scoundrel. And those who would join with them to secure his place are enemies of David and of the nation. This is the context in which David here is writing. And David prays, and you can hear this in the face of our circumstances, who bothers to pray anymore? I mean, we're starting to hear this in the public realm, and it's a, quite a sad thing. Pray, pray. Well, pray never prayer never accomplishes anything. Why would you pray? Let's send them good vibes. That'll help, right? And you hear people say things like this. And, and yet David, notice David here, he comes to the Lord in prayer. It's very sad that many think that prayer doesn't work, that it isn't effective. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Remember Hezekiah, when he was facing, being faced uh, by the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and he was threatened. What did Hezekiah do? He prayed. He prayed. And when the disciples feared for their lives, and they were being tossed about in a boat in the midst of a storm, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard them. Paul would say in Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Here, David prays concerning a very real problem that is facing him. And he says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Absalom and and all those supporting him in his effort to take over the throne have come against David. These enemies are coming out of the woodwork like bugs coming out from underneath the wall. And they are saying this, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Lord, I have all these enemies coming from all directions, and many are saying that I'm doomed, that I have no hope, that there is no escape from Absalom. There is no way I can be delivered. It's inevitable. The overthrow of the throne, it's inevitable. This is what they are saying. And they are saying that God will not help him. David has blown it, blown his chances of receiving help from God. And this uprising is a just desert for David. The bed he has made for himself, that's the bed he's going to have to lay in. And it's just not fair, it would seem, except if you know the context of what took place, it was fair. What David was going through is what he brought upon himself. Now we know that there are all sorts of struggles we have in this world just because we live in a fallen world. We know that Job didn't understand why he had to be sifted the way he was. That was a conversation between God and Satan. The man who was born blind, it wasn't because of his doing or his parents' doing, but rather was for the glory of God. This is a man who suffered blindness because we live in a fallen world, and oftentimes we struggle with things in this life because we live in a fallen world. This certainly was not David's case. David was suffering as a consequence of his sin. So understand, Absalom is hunting down David. They are saying he's never going to get away with this. He's not going to escape. He deserves this, and God will not deliver him. We read in 2 Samuel 11 of David's sin with Bathsheba, the adultery, the murder of Uriah, the cover-up, and the hypocrisy in the Lord's service. And then we read these words in 2 Samuel 12 of Nathan the prophet when he confronts David and he pronounces judgment on David. This is what he says. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is the Lord speaking through Nathan. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And if you read 2 Samuel 15 through 17, you will see that this is precisely what the Lord said was going to happen to David is precisely now what has happened to David. Absalom takes his concubines and sleeps with them on the rooftop so he could make himself odious to his father in the sight of all Israel. It was godless. It was terrible what was taking place. Those around David, his enemies, are saying that David has brought this on himself God is not going to to deliver you from this. Have you ever thought this way? Have you ever thought this way, that there's no hope for this guy? There's no hope for that girl? Look at how they've messed up their lives, what bad decisions they've made, unlearned lessons. 
Why would God help them? Or have you ever thought of this? I have really messed up my life. I've got so many consequences right now in my life that I am suffering that I'm sure God would never help me. And why should he? You've rebelled. You sinned. You deserved what you're getting. So stop whining about the problems you've made. This is the way that we think. This is the way Absalom and the enemies are certainly thinking about this. And this is the way the world looks at these things. You've made your bed, now lie in it. But it sounds quite legalistic, if you ask me. Because it boils down to this. So if I do good, God will honor me. And if I do bad, God will, God will forget me and cast me aside. It's important here. This is a very important point. Because we're dealing with the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, who had royally, pardon the pun, who had royally messed up his life. He took another man's wife. He committed adultery. He was the king of Israel, a type of of Christ to come. He murders. He lies. He cheats. He lives in hypocrisy, not giving his heart to the Lord, rather doing whatever pleased him to do. And the Lord found him out. Notice, it was Nathan the prophet, God's seer, who came and revealed this sin to David. Everyone else was kept quiet. Nobody else saw it or never wanted to acknowledge it. And God, God exposed his sin. He is bearing a consequence, friends, for his sin. Perhaps you are too. But does it stand then that he shouldn't pray? In other words, let's say you have sinned royally. And you've really done something stupid. And you know it and you're suffering the consequences of it. Would you advise somebody like that to don't even bother praying? You are beyond hope. Or, Christian, what would you say to them? In my opinion, my humble opinion, this is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Because the world, as we've been looking through Colossians, working through it, what does the world say? Ah, you're not really in a good place right now to be calling on God. You're still pretty messed up. And what does the Christian say? Yeah, you're pretty messed up. (laughs) You should go run to God. You should go cry upon the Lord. That's the difference between Christianity, biblical Christianity, and a worldly structure, a worldly understanding of how we approach God. What I think is fascinating is that they're saying there is no deliverance for him in God. Look at him. The wretch, he's getting just what he deserved. And David prays. David prays. What a glorious thing that when you mess up your life, you don't have to go and secretly beat yourself up in order to to merit the grace of God. You go to God. Because he's a gracious God. Do you see this? Do you see this? In the world's understanding, David has not a prayer. 
But in the Lord's word, David has a prayer. He has a prayer. Those who say he doesn't, they are wrong. Who is this God and what is your relationship to him? What was David's relationship with the Lord? These enemies of David are speaking as those who speak, who don't have a true knowledge of the Almighty, uh, of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, by the way, was it Abraham who found God? No! Who found Abraham? It was God. He is the one who sought out Abraham. You see, this tells us something about God. And it tells us something that you must dearly believe and understand about him. What was David's relationship with God? Notice here, he uh, recognized who the Lord is. He is the God who protects his people and sustains them. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from the holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. In this psalm, David uses the word Lord six times. It is the Hebrew um, Yahweh. Lord stands for Yahweh. It's a proper name. It's the name of a person, though the person be divine, the Lord. The name goes back to the earliest of times. It is a name that is glorious and fearful and implies that God is near. He has this concern for man and the revelation of his redemptive covenant. You see, he calls him Lord because it's, it's like saying if, if you've grown up and you, you, named, you had a special name for your father, my son calls me Dad. That's his special name for me. Hey, Dad. Some of you have heard say Pops or, uh, or Papa or, or Daddy. You say things like that, and it's, a, it's, it's got a different connotation because it's special, it's sweet. It's, it's a, a term of intimacy. And here, David uses this term, Lord, Yahweh. You're near to your people. You're faithful to your people. You will not hand your people aside. Even though now he is suffering under the, the, the consequences of his sin, he is not shy about going to the Lord for help. Why? Because David is not trusting in his performance. You do that ever? You sin and you say, oh, I've just got to go make myself suffer a little bit here. Maybe I'm going to go hit myself with a hammer so I can feel better about approaching the Lord. Do you know how Roman Catholic that is? Suffer a little bit and then you'll make yourself worthy to be heard. How many of you, when you sin, immediately will turn around, fall on your knees and say, God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I just spurned your name. I just blasphemed your name. I violated the third commandment because I call myself a Christian and I have behaved in just the opposite. I say that I'm a partaker of grace and I just lived and behaved like the devil. What do you have to do to make yourself of worth to the Lord? Tell me what you have to do to make yourself of worth. Tell me what can you do to make yourself of worth. Nothing. That's what you can do. David approaches the Lord 
Not because he has suffered enough. Not because he's offered enough sacrifices. Not because he's turned around and repented good enough. Because you can never repent good enough. David approaches the Lord because he is the Lord. Because of his kindness. He has reason to hope because of who the Lord is. While his sin does deserve, and he is getting the consequences that he was told he would get, he calls on the Lord because the Lord is kind and the Lord is loving. Friends, if you don't know that, you don't know the Lord. If you think that the Lord is just waiting to strike you with a lightning bolt and he doesn't want to talk to you because you've been sinful, you don't know the Lord. And you don't understand the depths of your depravity or the the amazing grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And I pity you. That was Absalom. That were the enemies. No one's going to deliver this man from the consequences he deserves. And David, understanding his consequences, nonetheless cries out to the Lord. He calls upon the Lord like a child cries out to his father. Or like a friend cries out to a friend. It was God who chose Abraham. It is God who reached out to Abraham. And we are told in James 2.23. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. God chose him, sought him out, and God made him a friend. This guy who was 75 years old, who hands his wife off, pawns his wife off as a sister to Pharaoh, who falls prey to a bad idea to sire a child with a handmaid. This guy is like every guy, a knucklehead on some days, did something stupid and yet God would seek him out not because he was stupid, but because God is gracious, seeks him out and saves him and calls him a friend. That's our God. That's who David is calling upon. He had sinned. There were consequences. But the Lord is a covenant-keeping God, and he forgives, he cleanses, he remembers no more our sin and has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. My friends, the Lord does not cast his people aside when we sin. That should be a great encouragement to us. We don't and shouldn't take his grace for granted, but understand that he's not some love me, he loves me, he loves me not kind of God. His love is not a fickle love. So his enemies are saying there is no deliverance, and David, in legitimate confidence, knowing and being known by the Lord, prays just the opposite. Who is this Lord to his people. Be mindful that the Lord is not a shield and glory to all people. God, again, is becoming fashionable in our world, but understand that it's only those in Jesus Christ who have this God. But to those who he has redeemed in Christ, who he has made righteous, David would say, He is a shield about me. The Lord is a shield about me, He is a cover, a protection to me. Nothing, nothing can get to you that the Lord doesn't want you to go through. 
All that does come to you is what the Lord has deemed best for his child. He is a shield about me. David goes on to say he's my glory. While David or you or me have passed or perhaps not so praiseworthy uh, presence, our prospects as children of God, um, David sees his glory not in what he has done for God, but in whom the Lord is. The Lord is the object of glory. The Lord is the one in whom David rejoices. And he says that the Lord is the one who lifts my head, who turns my sorrow into joy. Though he lose everything, and at this point he is being marched out, he is marching out, escaping from Jerusalem. He's leaving everything behind him. And notice here that he has the Lord. And he still has joy, even though he has and is in danger of losing everything. He acknowledges that he was crying to the Lord with his voice, crying about his enemies, crying because of the consequences of his sin, and his confidence is in the Lord. The Lord's grace is greater by far than any sin David committed. The Lord's grace is by far greater than any sin you have done. This is the goodness of God to the sinner. This is why, friends, we don't focus upon what we do so much for the Lord, but we focus upon what the Lord has done for us. As in the Lord's Supper, we see this picture of how great a love the Lord has for us. So David has prayed, David has cried, and we are told that the Lord has answered from his holy mountain. He had to flee Jerusalem. He was not near the tabernacle, the temple, nor... um, the tabernacle rather nor the ark of the covenant yet the lord answered where can david go where can you go to flee from the father where can you go according to psalm 139 uh, you cannot flee from his presence so we find that in spite of the difficulties that david is facing the words of his enemies david is helped because the lord is faithful as a result of the lord's help David says, I lay down, I slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. The man who was so threatened is also the man who, because of who the Lord is and his relationship with them, is able to lay down and sleep and to wake up in the morning because the Lord himself had sustained him. The same picture we see of Peter in prison, though Peter wasn't suffering the consequences of his sin, but suffering for being a servant of the Lord. Peter fell asleep between the guards. A picture of rest. The Lord supported him. As one commentator said, the Lord supports him and that God's hand is his pillow. Because this loving almighty hand is beneath his head, he is inaccessible and therefore also devoid of fear. So great is the Lord's faithfulness to his people, my friends. So great is his love, David says. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. My friends, things can get worse for us, yet no matter the gravity of the circumstances, hallelujah, no matter what circumstances come upon us, right? nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's good news. Things can get worse, and yet the Lord will always be enough. He will carry you, protect you, and sustain you through it all. So David knows the Lord. He's cried out to the Lord. 
He recognizes who the Lord is. But now notice what he does in verses 7 and 8. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. As one commentator wrote, For David, called to kingship, refuge is not enough. To settle for less than victory would be a virtual abdication. Hence, the uncompromising terms of verse 7. David had sinned. We've established that fact. He was bearing his consequence, but it does not mean that his enemies were justified in their behavior towards him. What is at stake is the overthrow of the throne, a throne that was established righteously, and this throne is at stake, the people of God being under a lawless king, such as Absalom, uh, would suffer. Though anointed king, you recall David when he was anointed to be king, do you remember his approach to Saul? He would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. David would not attack Saul. He says, that's not for me to remove Saul. Notice what Absalom is doing. Oh yeah, I'm going to remove him. Absalom's a wicked man. He's a wicked man. And David, he prays. He prays, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked Notice in verse 1, as we saw, many are rising up against me. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He is a call. He sends out his call to God, to this covenant-keeping Lord, to come to his defense. His enemies are rising up. Now what does he say to the Lord? Arise, arise. He calls, as my enemies are coming after me, Lord, would you please Rise up at this point, and will you come and defend me? When the armies in Israel had set forth with the ark before them, they pronounced these words in in Numbers chapter 10, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let them that hate you flee from you. Again, this word arise is an expression typical in the Psalms, and it's sung at the beginning of war. Here they call for God to fight for his people. David here as a king is saying, Lord, fight for me, fight for your people. He's calling out to the Lord as they have arisen, so Lord, you too rise up. And though he doesn't have the ark with him, he understands the theology that we are weak and men are weak, but God is strong and our fighting is useless unless the Lord goes with us. With God's presence, victory would come and enemies would be annihilated. He's praying that the Lord would shame them. They have shamed David. And he is now praying that the Lord would strike them on the cheek so as to shatter their teeth or to make them speechless or like animals who have lost their teeth. Either way, David is praying, Lord, make my enemies, make these enemies of yours ineffectual in their attempt to propagate evil and the evil of hurting God's anointed and God's people. What is the victory? It is the overthrow of those who oppose God and his people who oppose David and the church. And he says finally in verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. He expresses here his confidence in the Lord that he will not only deliver him from the attacks of his enemy, but also will bless 
or cause his people to thrive. David's hope is not a faint hope in this psalm. In spite of everything, it is not a faint hope he holds to, but a very reality. He not only fights the Lord, that is, not only fights for us against those who attack his church physically, but against those who fight against us spiritually. The Lord fights our spiritual enemies. Who is the enemy of the Lord's people? It is Satan. He is the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our lives. He is an accuser. He was a deceiver and a murderer from the beginning, a liar. He is the destroyer. He is the one who says there is no deliverance for him in God. Isn't that what he does? When you have sinned, when you have fallen, you say, oh, I don't think the Lord would hear you. And Satan's standing by going, no, he won't listen to you. So why bother praying? Why bother serving him? Why bother following? You've already destroyed your life. Satan whispers like this. Look at your sin. You haven't a prayer. But my friends, just like David prays, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. The Lord has risen, and he has brought salvation to his people. We're almost done. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? And I want to read... Uh, Verses 68 through 75 in Luke 2. Make that Luke 1. (laughs) I went to Luke 2 and it doesn't have that many verses. Luke 1, my apologies. 68. Listen to what Zacharias prophesies. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. My friends, look at this table in front of us. David cries out for the Lord to arise. We cry out to the Lord, O Lord, arise, deliver us from our enemies. And does the Lord hear our prayers? There's the answer right in front of us. Jesus Christ has come. He has come, and he has come, and as John said, he has come to destroy the works of the devil by giving his life, his very life, to conquer the enemy of of his people. He brings deliverance. And so we are given this assurance in Scripture, if then he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see here, this is the assurance we have That Christ has come, he has conquered our enemies, and the Lord himself will never be mocked. He delivers his people, and so we most certainly may have a confident trust in the Lord to care for us in any and all circumstances. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word, and pray that your blessing now will be upon this supper as we partake it. I pray, Father, that as we partake of it, 
we would see in this broken bread and in the passing of this cup the life that was given and the blood that was shed in order to conquer our enemies. We thank you for what you have done on our behalf. And we confess that like David, Lord, um, the suffering that we undergo, we have brought upon ourselves. And yet the one who did not sin suffered in our stead. We thank you, O Lord, that you are that great warrior, that great king who came and has delivered us. We pray, O Father, that we will not lose hope, but that we would confidently look to you, that you will, you will keep us and you will hold fast to us. I do ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.